Well, I'd invite you now to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. I spent quite a bit of time pulling out more from my heart and from the Word of God um, related to where I didn't finish last week. And that is Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 10. It's a very, very significant passage about Christ being fully human. Let me read it to you. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, as we've been studying in chapter 5 of this great book, Hebrews, we've been learning that Jesus is a better high priest. That's really Hebrews' language, that he's better than the angels, he's better than Moses, he's better than Abraham, he's better than the law, he's the best. That's what the author is saying. He's the best high priest because he's the only high priest, but he's the only high priest that gives us eternal life, I should say. A human priest, in comparison to Christ, represented eternal life, but was never meant to be the means for eternal life. Human priests were chosen and appointed. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 1 talks about that. They performed acts of reconciliation, but these were in terms of gifts and sacrifices that were outward signs of God's forgiveness, granted based on an inward faith and an inward repentance that was looking to an atonement from a Messiah to come, but the Messiah has come. These high priests in the Old Testament, the Levitical law, were mere men. They were human sinners, and they knew their sin. They had to offer a sacrifice for their own sin when they offered other sacrifices for other people's sins. Because they knew their own sins, they were mediators. They weren't judges. They mediated a gentle, compassionate spirit of reconciliation. But the text here is saying that Christ is better. He is like the priest of old, but he's better. He was chosen. He was appointed by God the Father. He came to reconcile man to God, but this time not as a symbol or a sign of reconciliation, but Jesus is the means of reconciliation. He offered himself. And though he was affirmed, By God, as a king, when he was raised from death, we need to remember he came as a commoner, taking on flesh. He is fully human and fully God. He has the full human spirit just like us. Perfect, yes, but fully human, meaning fully sympathetic, like a high priest of the Old Testament being gentle and sympathetic as a sinner, Jesus as a sinless savior, fully human, is fully sympathetic as he endured a life here on earth just like yours and mine. Jesus' sympathy in the human spirit is nowhere explained 
and summarized in greater depth and pathos and passion than we have before us in these verses. This is Jesus' human experience summarized for us. It's a path of priesthood that was not detached. It was not religious. The path of his priesthood was him walking on this earth where his temple was a dirty, sin-cursed ground. His altar, a rock for which he knelt by. His sanctuary, his own heart to the Lord. His ministry was to his friends, people he knew and loved. His bloody sacrifice that he gave was himself nailed to a chopped down tree. His hard life is a survival guide for us. It tells us how to live our life's journey. Hardship abounds. Christ is your compass. He's your guide. He is your map. He is the light for the path and the guide for the trail. You know, in a real sense, you have no idea, neither do I, what's coming around the next corner of life, do you? Not at all. We need Jesus because we can't see what's around the bend. If you're like me, and some of you are, I don't know if it's popular to raise your hand in this moment or not, but how many of you like me would say, I never in my wildest dreams would have thought I would have ended up in Alaska? Ever. Yeah, ever. Some of you, I know, I see that hand. Uh, but it's, uh, but it's, it's a dream come true. Once you're here, if you're in the center of God's will, it's, it's perfect. It's like, man, this is why I'm here. But I never thought I would end up in Alaska. I didn't aspire to be here, but God takes us places. He brings things into our lives. He brings challenges, whether it's relocation, health, a loss. God sets up circumstances as a means to take you and me to another level. That's how he does it, one step at a time. We grow in stages. What does this mean? Well, we're making heads or tails of what does Jesus' life as a priest on earth mean for our life and how we make heads or tails of how we live? How he grew is how you are supposed to grow. You got that? How he lived is how you are supposed to live. His priesthood is your priesthood. First Peter says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people of his own possession. You're priests. Your temple is the sin-cursed world. Your sanctuary is in your heart, right? Your altar is kneeling by a rock and saying, Lord, help me. Your path is his path. Your ministry, as you minister, your priestly ministry is to your friends, right? This is our priesthood path that Jesus trailblazed. And as you march down this path, he grows you, as 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, from one degree of glory to another. It's a crucible of trials, though, right? We grow, typically not while we're sleeping, at least spiritually, while we're checked out and resting. It's when we wake up and we remember the pain and pressure of life that we're facing and how we're dealing with it. That's how he grows you and me. First Peter 6, 1, I'm sorry, 1, 6, and 7. 
It's the tested genuineness of our faith that's more precious than gold, though it's tested by fire. James 1, 1 and 2, consider it joy when you face various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance, that you'll be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He's growing us through pain. It's important to realize that this transformation is the human struggle. It is God's ordained training ground for you. And the sooner you embrace that, the more content you can be in a life that is filled with travail and difficulty. So this text, it gives us the ultimate living illustration of Christ as a leader who is asking nothing more of his troops than he would do himself first. Jesus went in to the battle. He went into the fray and says, follow me. Jesus stands at the finish line and says, run the race of endurance and I'm waiting for you because I just ran it. That's what this text is saying. He models life perseverance and survival. Now, if you've ever been involved in inductive Bible study or in journalism for that matter, you've been faced with what are called the five W's that are prescribed in journalism. And it's an excellent study tool for mining gold out of scripture. And that's what we're going to use this morning for our outline. It's the who, what, when, where, and why. Real difficult outline time for me this week. I just said, well, we're going to do it that way. Number one, who? Now, we're going to find Jesus and his life on earth through the five W's. And we're going to do that by asking, who is this Jesus? Jesus is mentioned by name again in verse 7, speaking of his humanity. But skip to verse 8 first. And we'll back back into verse 7 in a minute. It says, although he was a son which speaks of Christ's sonship, which speaks of his deity. Sonship or a son here is in scripture without a definite article. It's talking about the fact that Jesus is qualitatively the same as God the Father in his essence. Just as God the Father is God, God the Son is God. That's what this means. If you look at chapter 1, that's the point. Jesus is God, not angels. He's better than angels. And it's repeated over and over. Verse 2, he's spoken to us by his son. His son, the revelator of God, the radiance of his glory. He's superior to angels. He's at the right hand of God in heaven. Verse 5, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Reference back to Psalm 2-7, speaking of the resurrection of Christ. You're affirmed as my begotten son. Verse 5 at the end, you are a son to me. Firstborn, um, verse 6, speaking of sonship in verse 8, but of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This speaks of Jesus is God, the sonship, the son who came on earth, who deserved all respect, allegiance, honor, adoration, and yet was met with hatred. Jesus is divine, though. He's the eternal high priest, uniquely related to God the Father. And yet Jesus, according to verse 8, learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, he didn't learn obedience because of his humanity. 
he learned obedience according to verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience. You see that word, although? It's the idea of the author saying, even though Jesus is God, he still in his humanity learned obedience through what he suffered. Do you see that? It's very interesting language here. It's the author saying, Jesus is this divine, and yet this divine son on earth learned. It's a mind buster, right? It's, it's a brain teaser. He's divine. He's king. But even though those things are true, he took a posture and actually as a son learned obedience. It's a distinction that Jesus is divine, but he's also human. How does this work out? This is why I took some extra time this week on this, trying to understand it. Because the more that you understand how Jesus, who is divine, also authentically learned obedience through what he suffered, the more you can believe that Jesus relates to you and carved a genuine path for you to live. How does a son learn obedience? Well, a son, a sinful son, learns obedience through hard, hard life experiences, passing and failing them. Hebrews 12, 5, it says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. So we're going to learn how Jesus though being sinless, still learned as a sinless son in the same way that a human son learns from his father through hard circumstances. That's the who. Now we're looking at what? What? Verse 8, learning obedience through what he suffered. What does this mean? Well, learned and suffered in the original language, it's uh, imanthin and epathin. It's a aphorism or a play on words where it, it would be akin to us saying, no pain, no gain, right? It's uh, you, you learn through this suffering. You learn from suffering. Let me say this. This will sort of open the door for us to think. Jesus Divinity and eternality does not give, did not give Jesus automatic purity. What does that mean? I mean in terms of his righteousness. Yes, he was sinless, but he had to vindicate his sinlessness. Jesus learned obedience authentically through suffering. Doesn't mean that he moved from being disobedient ever. Jesus never sinned. To being obedient, we know that. He sympathizes with us without sin, Hebrews 4.15. It does mean he moved from being untested to being tested and proven. Let me read a quote from John Piper on this. It says, The gold of Christ's natural purity was put in the crucible and melted down with white-hot pain so that he could learn from experience what suffering is and prove that his purity would persevere. What does that mean? Again, his white hot pain was real. When Jesus prayed, it was real. He prayed to survive. 
he was fighting for his faith to persevere. When he begged God for help, it was real. It was authentic. When he cried, when he wept, these were real. These were not fakery. These were not histrionics. This was not theatrics. This was not a fake test. The whole universe hung in the balance on Jesus being pure and passing every life trial that God the Father put in his path where he vindicated himself and his purity. Operating this way, he obeyed and increasingly grew through difficult situations that were developing in front of him as a training program all the way to the cross. Listen to what Bruce Ware says. He's a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He says, The greatest act of obedience required the deepest commitment of faith and hope in his Father, so it stands to reason that the Father had prepared Jesus for this moment through the series of tests described in the Gospels. Do you remember when Jesus, for instance, went to John the Baptist and said, Baptize me? And John the Baptist said, I, you know, I don't need to baptize you. You need to baptize me. And Jesus said, permit it now that it may fulfill all righteousness, right? Jesus knew this was a test. I need to follow through at this point and do this. So we know the who and the what. Now, when, when did this happen? Go back to verse seven. It says, in the days of his flesh. Are we talking about sinful flesh? No, not at all. Jesus was never sinful. We're talking about his humanity, his frailty, his weakness while he was here on earth, his pre-glorification status, pre-resurrection. He was called, as uh, Pastor Johnson just read in Isaiah 53, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was, he was walking in his three-year ministry in the days of his flesh and his 33-year life in the days of his flesh, being tested. All of this led to Gethsemane, and we're going to talk about that, but days is plural, not limited to Gethsemane. So reading the gospel, it appears that Jesus learned to obey in lighter situations, having been protected and provided for by the Father. Remember the statement, I think it's in Luke 4, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. He grew. Things happened. He went, he, he duped his parents, right? And, and left and was in Jerusalem suddenly studying under teachers. Well, I don't know if he duped them, but anyway, that's where he was. Luke two forty six. After three days, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them, to the teachers, and asking them questions. Why? Because Jesus needed to learn. He was mocked by his half-brothers at the Feast of Tabernacles during that time. Hey, go down there, show off if you're, you're who you claim to be. And Jesus went down there perfectly, never sinned. He expressed indignation. Remember the the righteous indignation, the wrath of Christ where he turned tables over and kicked people out of the temple, ran them off with a whip. Jesus wept. Jesus felt compassion. Jesus felt courage. Jesus became incredulous at points with his disciples. Have I been with you so long? 
right? Jesus was human, fully human, filled with exasperation at times. Could you not tarry with me for even an hour? Couldn't you even stay awake in my hour of need? Jesus was overcome with grief and desperation. It's a real life experiences with real people. Real, look at verse 7, real prayers and supplications that he offered up. And these are terms that increase. If you look at it, prayers, supplications, loud cries, and tears. Uh, The point that the author's making is that Jesus experienced the full gamut of emotion as he sent his heart up to his father to persevere, to fight the good fight of faith, like Paul told Timothy. This is a real path that Jesus cut for us. And again, perseverance is the big idea. It's the big picture. So to trivialize verse 7 and say, well, his prayers and supplications and loud cries and tears, this is just automatic because Jesus is perfect. Let's just, let's just anchor ourselves in the impeccability of Christ, which I believe in. I do not believe Jesus could have sinned because Jesus is God. I understand that. But at the same time, that does not take away the authentic life that he lived here on earth for you and for me, gaining sympathy, being real, carving the path, being the trailblazer, being the one who stands at the finish line saying, come on, you can do it. I did it. You can do it. That means nothing to you if you go, well, he was just automatic. It was just not a thing. When, when Satan tempted him, those temptations just really kind of fell off. I'll just, you know, I'll fast for a month, but it doesn't really matter. I'm not really hungry. No, Jesus was starving and he clung to scripture in Deuteronomy and said, I'm not going to eat stones turned to bread. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to test the Lord. I'm not going to worship Satan. And he really did that and everything really hung in the balance. Because he passed the test. The loud cries that are mentioned in verse 7 are animal-like howling. I've heard people cry like that. It's not human sounding. It's awful. Well, the vocal point here is Gethsemane. This is the where. We have the who, the what, the when. And then it narrows into a place where. And that's Gethsemane. The three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, capture his time at Gethsemane. It's the apex of Christ's learned obedience. This is where everything comes to a head. This is where Christ's test was ultimate. And his agony there was real. Mark says Jesus was deeply distressed, Mark 14, 33. The word distress here means that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was terrified. He was terrified. He was astonished. He was horrified. Mark 14, 34 says that Jesus was saying, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. In the New American Standard, it says, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That means that Jesus was so terrified and so shaken by what he was about to face, even though perfect, without sin, knowing full well what God's will was, knowing that the test had come at this point, at the perfect moment, at the Passover feast, where Jesus is fulfilling that symbol. He knows all that. He's got it. 
Just like you as a Christian, you got it. I'm going to heaven. I got it. I'm a blood-bought Christian. I got it. Jesus is sovereign. I got it. He lives in my heart. I got it. I got it. Life is still killing me inside at the same time, right? It was no different with Jesus than it is with you. That's why this works. That's why you can say, I'm a Christian, I believe the promises of God, and I believe life is really, really hard at the same time, and it's okay. That's what's portrayed here at Gethsemane. His agony was real. His soul was overwhelmed. His sorrow was to the point of death. He fell over. His physical life was threatened. He could have had a heart attack. That's what's being conveyed here. Verse 35 of Mark 14 Going a little farther, this is the New American Standard Version. He fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take or ESV, remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So the disciples coming in and out of sleep while Jesus goes a little farther, probably peeked over and saw him heard him and saw him wailing on the ground, writhing, apoplectic, wailing. Luke 22, sweating in agony, praying earnestly, sweating great drops of blood, falling down to the ground. That's the scene of agony. It's portrayed here. What was Jesus praying for, by the way? Look at verse 7. It says, with loud cries and tears to him, he's offering prayers and supplications, who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. So he was able to be saved from death, and he was heard. There was an answer to Christ's prayer. So how does this work out? This is another Very difficult thing to interpret or understand on the face. What did God answer is the question. In light of redemptive history, the fact that Jesus had to die on the cross to save us for our sins, Jesus was going to do this. It was was foreordained before the foundation of the world that Jesus would die on the cross. It was part of God's redemptive plan after the fall in the garden. It was going to happen. It was all foreshadowed. For centuries, his prayer request seems astonishing. Christ is repeatedly asking if an hour and a cup can be removed or avoided. What is this referring to? Well, some say it's referring to Christ saying, I want to be delivered from Satan. Others would say that Jesus wanted to persevere. He wanted to make it. Others say that Jesus wanted to be delivered from physical death. And others say that he was praying that he would not stay dead once he was in the grave. Others would say that Jesus would not be separated from his father. Remember that moment of darkness, that separation, that heart cry to the father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was praying that that would not happen. Others, that Jesus would not have to suffer and bear the world's sins and experience a million hells of God's wrath judgment upon him as he died on the cross. Which is it? Well, like any good test taker, there's always that last 
circle that says all of the above. And I would fill that in with this. I think Jesus was praying about all of the above. The difficulty of all of it. Physically, spiritually, all of it. Jesus was fully human. I think God's answer was found in Jesus yielding as a human man saying, not my will, but your will being done. That's what prayer is. Prayer is aligning ourselves to God's will. He's working in us. He's put tests in our path. He, he gives us one test that's preparing us for the next test. It's really hard today. But there's spiritual muscle that goes onto your heart and your life to prepare you for the next test that you can't even imagine facing. You can't even fathom that you'd be able to face, but God prepared you for it. In this test, for that test, it's Jesus aligning his will, seeing that all of his life and all of his experiences and all of his hardships led up to this point where he would decide, yes, I'll go. Yes, I'll absorb the wrath of God onto myself. Jesus wrestled to persevere and resigned his will to God's will. He, did, he genuinely cried for escape. John Calvin quoted a early church father, Cyril of Alexandria, who said this, You see that death was not voluntary for Christ as far as the flesh was concerned, but it was voluntary because by it, according to the will of the Father, salvation and life were given to all men. In other words, Jesus' death on the cross became voluntary as he wrestled, as he struggled, as he prayed, as he cried. As a man, he cried for escape, but as a man, Jesus Christ yielded to his Father's will. Yes, Jesus is God and could not sin. But his obedience was not automatic. It was through faith, his own faith. And it was, pray- it was prayers that were heard because of his reverence, which again is him yielding to his heavenly father's will. All right, so we've seen who, what, when, and where Now we need to ask the question and answer the question, why? 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 Why is this so important? Look at verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being made perfect, he became the source. Well, you say, okay, well, I'm ready to go home. We can start the nachos and everything can, you know, get, get rolling. Because it's very clear. Jesus through this was made perfect and he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. You know, A plus B equals C. We're good, right? Well, I guess on the face of things it's clear, but what do these terms actually mean? What does it mean that Jesus had to become anything, Right? He's God. He's perfect. Why, what, is, what does that mean? That he had to become something to be the source of our eternal salvation. Isn't he automatically the source of our eternal salvation? Why would Jesus, who has always been sinlessly perfect, why did he have to go through this process? Well, 
The word here in verse 9, perfect is from the word telos. It means the end state. Jesus was maturing to something. He was working towards something as a child, as a teenager, as an adult. There was something that was being worked out in everyday life at every stage of his life. He was perfecting obedience. Jesus was perfect and is perfect. He was not working from disobedience to obedience. He was always obeying, always perfect, always righteous, but he was working out his righteousness from an abstraction to something that was concrete. It's a lot like being hired to something. You say, well, I got the job. You know, I, I, I put the application in and they hired me to do this. I'm a teacher. I'm a police officer. I'm a firefighter. I'm an administrator. I'm a full-time minister. I'm going to preach. Hey, until you do those things, you really don't have any experience whatsoever, right? Until you set up your class and endure the first semester, which I taught here one semester. It's an endurance run, Right? It's tough to be a teacher. It's tough to do jobs. It's hard to do things. And as you do things and you put yourself out there, that's where the experience column begins to build. This is what Jesus did. He didn't just abstractly say, okay, I'm taking on human flesh and I'm going to fake it for three years and do it because I have to be able to die to fulfill an Old Testament law. No, he fully became human for you and me to experience this. Why? Why was this important? Look back at verse 1 of chapter 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. The point of the Old Testament Levitical Aaronic priest is that they were authentic. They were sinful, but they were real in what they were doing. They meant it. They were an authentic mediator between God and man because they were really human. They were the real thing. Well, if you want an eternal version of that, Jesus had to do it for real. Do you get it? It had to be real. It couldn't be fakery. It wasn't perfunctory. It was for you and for me. He really did it. He was really here. And because he's eternally God, it brings eternal salvation. He's the genuinely qualified high priest and source of eternal salvation. Genuinely. The high priest of the Old Testament, seven times a year, would offer a sacrifice at religious festivals like the Day of Atonement the Feast of Passover. But this found its authentic fulfillment in Christ because Jesus not only was sinless in his nature, he was sinless in his life. Do you see that? His nature of sinlessness was applied sinlessly in life. And that qualified him to not only be the perfect high priest, but the perfect sacrifice for our sins. But I think that there's a deeper level here that I want to take it to the heart. 
Jesus was not only a worthy sacrifice because we can say, okay, he was authentically sinless. Jesus to your heart needs to be this. This is what it means for him to be your source of eternal life. He's not only worthy, he's fully trustworthy. Do you see the difference? He's not only worthy, like on paper, I got it. Check it off, he's worthy. No, Jesus, you are worth my life. I trust you fully because I believe you did this. That's what it means to really cross over into understanding that he's the source of your eternal life. You're willing to, verse 9 at the end, obey him. This is, this is the obedience of faith, Romans 1.5. This is not work salvation. This is the children of Israel who needed to cross into to, to the promised land by faith. Not forsaking God, not forsaking promises, not being afraid of giants in the land, but crossing over by faith. This is the obedience of faith. This is a faith that lives out the fruit of following Jesus in a life just like he lived here on earth. This is eternal life, verse 10. It's designated by God, a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. Again, we're going to break out everything about Melchizedek in the next couple chapters. So I won't labor any time here, but it, it just means that this priesthood is eternal. This was not a ceremonial priesthood. This is the eternal priesthood. This is Christ. Again, the path of priesthood, not religious, not detached, in a world that's dirty, in a world that's sin-cursed, with an altar that's on our knees, with a sanctuary that's personal, with ministry that's to friends, a bloody sacrifice that's himself, or he died on a chopped-down tree. Let me ask this question. Is your path of priesthood religion or real? That's the question. You've heard all the theology. Now let's be good Puritans and go to the application section, right? It's a seminary joke. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Puritans always did that. They truckload of theology and then now the second half's application. Here's the application. Is your path of priesthood real or is it just religion? And here's the answer to the question. The way you face your next challenge in life will answer the question. If it's religion, you'll freeze or you'll go backwards. If it is real, then you'll face it. Are you still facing something where God has you, where you can't move on past it because you haven't learned what God needs you to learn here so that you can face the next challenge. Are you stuck? I've been stuck. I've been there. One time my wife and I um, had the privilege of hosting an African preacher called Conrad Mbewe. I had to work on his name, learn pronouncing it correctly. He's from Lusaka, Africa. Um, which is in Zambia. Lusaka is the capital of Zambia. And he's known in our evangelical circles here as the Spurgeon of Africa, Desiring God, World Magazine, Gospel Coalition. He, you know, he preaches at different places here widely. As Judy and I entertained or hosted Conrad. What we found fascinating was more than Conrad, though, because his wife, Felistus, came to the States for the first time. 
um, when he visited so many years ago. And we got to know Felicitas, too. So she had never had an American steak dinner, and so we took them for a steak dinner, and we sat there, and we talked, and we bonded as couples, and we're talking and sharing our lives. And we, we had had a pretty significant struggle in our church that we, we, I was an associate pastor in. We were at a stage in our ministry where we were wondering whether we should stay or go. And as we talked about the circumstances to Felista, Felista looked at us and she rightly discerned that had we left when we thought we were going to leave, we would have been running from our problems. And this is what she said. She said, smiling, and she was really gracious. She said, aren't you so glad you stayed so that God wouldn't have to teach you the same lesson at another church that you needed to learn while you were at this one. And listen, had we left and come here, we would have been a disaster. We'd have been far worse than anything negative that you think of me now. (laughs) Because you learn. You get beaten. This is what one of my best friends said. He said, listen... God will beat you out on, the, on his anvil in whatever church you're at. So stay at the church you're at and let him do his work there. That was his version of that. It's learning obedience. And there are, as Bruce Ware put it, no small obediences. Everyone matters. All of them. All of them are God's training ground preparing you for the next round So trust in this process, trust in the process that God has you in right now and trust in Christ as your eternal source of salvation. 